0: Welcome to the Char Work Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. Alright, so today's podcast is titled Legitimate Research Methods to Study Historical Figures. I'll just give you guys a brief background as to why this podcast has been designed for today. So, as you know, recently there was a lot of furore, uh, you know, at least on social media. And it, I would not say just social media, even in mainstream media where um, it all started with Modiji, you know, inaugurating a beautiful hologram or statue of Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose and it led to you know a series of objections from a wide variety of people some that are you know inside uh, a club that I call South Asian experts uh, experts are in courts by the way right now uh, if you if you're listening to the audio version of this but and then there were some uh Again, in quotes, intellectuals who were saying, oh, Netaji was a fascist and this and that it led, you know, led me to and, and obviously there is the Sada Bahar discussion on uh, Savarkar and <laughs> and whether Savarkar is X, whether Savarkar is Y. And, and that led me to start thinking about, you know, how do we judge historical figures? So I obviously did a monologue on it, but but then that was not enough. I, I, I'm not a trained historian. I am just a person who dabbles in philosophy and who has a little bit of formal training in it. But what I didn't, I, I needed to understand was so, what, when one does an analysis of a historical figure, how does one go about it? Like, how what are the tools that one uses? So, so you know, I reached out to Vikram, and Vikram, as always, has been so kind that whenever I reach out to him, he never says no. So, Vikram, thanks for coming.
1: Thank you, Kushal. Always a pleasure to speak to you.
0: So, Vikram, let's start like this. So now you're, you know, you're a trained historian. You've been doing this for a long time. So today we are going to cover a wide range of things. But my first question to you will be this. When, when let's say I was to train, you know, get into this field and I want to understand what are the different tools that I use when I look at a historical figure. So where should a person start? So how how does the training happen?
1: Hmm. Uh, that's a very interesting question, Kushal. But I think before let's let's step take one step back and get sure. to what is history itself. Uh, you know, and what are the inherent uh, you know, uh, if I can say, problems that the discipline uh, poses for everyone who is in a serious pursuit of it. Now, first of all, uh, and and I'm drawing since you said uh, you dabble in philosophy, I'm dabbling a lot in philosophy in what I've thought uh, of telling you today uh, that, you know, first and foremost, you know, the past is not present for verification, the very by very virtue, by the very virtue of it being the past, it is not present for verification so much so like the physical sciences, where you can actually see. And, uh, you know, decipher for yourself in a lab or whatever. So very, very fundamental, I think uh, this is an epistemic kind of a contradiction in the very discipline of history is this. This is the, the root of it. So to reconstruct uh, this past, which is not present for verification, we need sources. And these sources can uh, be Varied, they can be archaeological, they are textual, they are epigraphic or inscriptions, and all these are used to reconstruct. But then, what is important to note, Kushal, is that these sources are themselves fragmented, they are biased, or they are incomplete. Uh, you know, some archaeological, <clears throat> uh, you know, ruins, buildings have been destroyed, or uh, texts are incomplete, something has been burned down. So, they are <clears throat> fragmented biased, and uh, incomplete. So inherently, all the sources that we need to reconstruct uh, a discipline of which we know very little are inherently compromised. And the third, uh, you know, problem comes on this, that the onus of interpreting these uh, inherently compromised sources is on a modern historian, who brings to the table his or her own biases, uh, you know, or as you know, the historian Collingwood had said historical imagination, uh, his or her own historical imagination, which could range from his ideology, his worldview, uh, expertise or the lack of it, um, and narrow or broad specialization in a particular area. So, therefore, these three reasons that the past is not present. Uh, that the sources are compromised and the person who's reconstructing the sources is himself or herself coming in with uh, biases, lack of expertise, whatever else, makes history as a discipline a very, very heavily, uh, should I say, mediated and a constructed phenomenon with lots of interpretations. Uh, So what we see is only a mediated version of the past. And that is what history is, which the present has created. So the interpretations are going to be subjective, and for that very reason, multiple pasts also will exist. Now, within the school of historiography, the way historiography has developed today, uh, the, the the dominant school is the uh, is the one that developed in uh, in Germany in just post enlightenment and all of that. We had Leopold uh, von Ranke. Uh, the Rankian school of history, which is what a lot of modern historians, uh, you know, rely on, which is modern source-based history, which uh, also known as the positivist school, which uh, puts a lot of stress on scientific methodology, objectivity, and kind of, you know, uh, looking at sources, empirical, uh, empirical analysis and all of that. And that's become like the buzzwords. If you say, Uh, The history I write is modern, objective, scientific, empirical, your past, as that is the golden standard of what history is. But, uh, you know, on this too, there has been a lot of criticism. Uh, In fact, another very eminent historian, Ethan Kleinberg, uh, you know, in his paper, thesis on the theory and uh, thesis on theory and history, he says, and I just want to quote this for your viewers. uh, He says this, uh, and I quote, existing academic history promotes a disciplinary essentialism founded on a methodological fetishism. So there's a lot of fetish on methodology, methodology, what is methodology? And he says, he continues to say, uh, the field tends to produce scholars rather than thinkers and regards scholars in technocratic terms. So historians typically write for other professional historians, paying special attention uh, to the interdisciplinary norms and gatekeepers upon which career advancement depends. This guild mentality fosters an ethos of specialized, you you use the word in quotes, he has also used the word in quotes, experts, workmen who instrumentally employ their expertise, again in quotes, as proof of membership and performance of status. So, unquote. So what he, uh, and I think this uh, paper is actually available online and your viewers should, Uh, you know, Google and download this. It's called Thesis on Theory and History. It's a beautiful uh, brief paper, which talks about what are the problems with this whole empiricist uh, approach to modern historiography. And what is very important, Kushal, is this overemphasis on this uh, emphasis uh, on this empiricism has also led history to become a tool for construction of cultural differences in the hands of empire. Uh, So history as a tool for or a handmaiden of colonial powers, colonialism, uh, where hegemony and exclusionary uh, kind of uh, views were reinforced, where it says that this is what modern history is. This is what this is how the past needs to be understood and constructed. And anybody who does not do that, any civilization that does not do that is inherently uncivilized it is unscientific and they don't even have a a notion of history writing as India was always, uh, you know, subjected to that criticism uh, that Indians, um, and this is even from the Muslim historians, as well as the British ones that India or the Hindus do not have the concept of history writing. They do not maintain documents, uh, not realizing that. So this is again imposing as Ethan Kleinberg says, Uh, imposing their view of what, uh, you know, expertise is, what are those norms, the gatekeeping and all of that, totally disregarding that individual civilizations and cultures would have their own standards of representation, like in India, myths and rhetoric and didactics, all of these, which are always somehow found, you know, wanting, they are inferiorized, they are looked down as the other, they are shunned. And this is how history, as we know it as a discipline, has literally become the handmaiden of, uh, as I said, the colonial empire. And from the colonial, post colonial world, you've had Marxist historians drawing extensively from the same uh, whirlpool of uh, methodology and uh, obsession with uh, empiricism and all of that, which Uh, kind of perpetuates the same colonial biases that come to how history is read, written, represented and understood. So, in fact, uh, another important, uh, you know, writer E.H. Carr had said objectivity, when it comes to objectivity uh, of sources, yeah, it's a preposterous fallacy. He called it a preposterous fallacy when it came to history. So objectivity, as I said, right, going back to what I said right at the start, uh, the biases that come with the sources, with the people analyzing the sources, expecting any modicum of objectivity is itself, as Carr says, a preposterous fallacy in history. And so we need to keep all these limitations in mind when we kind of analyze history or when we analyze historical works, either contemporary or of the past.
0: So let us uh, get a little bit into this, this thing. So I actually do understand where you're coming from. So the thing is like in India, like we have Itihasa, right? We have Itihasa mm-hmm. and there are very specific texts that are called Itihasa. Now, let's say we will put... Uh, now, le- even leaving that aside, let us look at the Puranas, for example. Puranas <laughs> are written in a particular form. They do talk about events in the past, but in a very poetic way. Yes. And, and, it, and that's just the way this culture evolved. Now... Uh, in the case of history-centric cultures, uh, history-centric yes. being uh, a culture where there was a specific event where the god, through an agent being a, a, a prophet, spoke to the people, and it creates a history-centric trend, and then those history-centric trends overall, dev- you know, evolve into a system where uh, people write in a particular way. Now. It is what it is. The world evolved because the world got colonized by a certain culture over b certain culture and the, the world, I, I, you know, we, we just adopt habits as they are. But if that is the case, and now we want to understand our own culture and our own things in the past, we still would have to create some sort of a baseline though, right? right. So how do we grapple with that? Now I'll give you an example of a classic case in India where Let us look at the Mughal period as an example. I'm just I'm not I'm not making a commentary on whether they were good or bad. That is my personal opinion, and we will keep it aside, right? But the Mughal period has this thing called the Mughal chronicles of the Mughal court historians, right? right? Now, even within that, I have heard so and I don't want to take the names of historians, there are so many multiple views when it comes to Mughal court historians. So there is, uh, I can take these people's names. If you remember the Elliot and Dawson, right? Uh, history mm-hmm. of India, history and culture of India told like, by its own people. If I remember yes. that. So a yes. huge 9,000 page volume or something like that. And all they did was, it was very funny. Their foreword said, oh, you said the British are bad. Look how bad these people were. That, that's literally the starting point in the foreword of Elliot and Dawson. And then they mm-hmm. look at Mughal court historians and they literally quote them and their view now the the academic response to that was that mughal court historians can't be the authority on mughal history because they would exaggerate and show for machismo and bravado so we should negate everything they have said and they completely redid the whole history now i so my question to you is I could be using the same logic that you said, right, and interpret it that way. But that then creates a very weird case where here is the case of a Mughal court historian literally saying, oh, those heathens, we did this to the temples. and we But I would use that logic that you said and do some weird sort of mental gymnastics. Don't you think we would run into a problem there then? Yes, we are. And
1: that's what we're seeing that Kushal all the time. Like, I'll give you one instance. I think it was... Uh, Farishta and so many others uh, you know, uh, uh, Al-Baruni and others in their accounts um, especially of, let's take a specific example of the sunat Mandir and uh, Mahmud Ghazni comes there uh, in 1025 CE and he kind of um, uh, goes via Patan the Chalukya uh, you know, capital of Patan and the King Bhimdev has uh, run away and so he has a free uh, run um, through patan destroys it and goes to somnath uh, and then we know that the temple was destroyed now what you you hit the na- nail on the head to show how distortion can happen there where you know alberuni and uh, all these people farishta and others in uh, farishta wrote much later i think in the 15th century or so Al-Baruni as a contemporary wrote that where uh, you know mahmud ghazni goes to the temple and he's first of all shocked to see that there are fifty thousand plus, uh, you know, Hindus who are not part of the royal entourage or you know the royal uh, this one because the king himself had run away. Uh, so these people, common people, were there to defend the temple, which was built almost like a fortress. Now it took him four or five days to actually uh, annihilate them, slay all of them, and then make his way to the Garbagh. And when he goes there the, the Pujari, uh, they finally, uh, you know, they say uh, as a last ditch attempt, they say you have come here for money, right? And so uh, how, how much ever money you want, you know, twice that much money, what all wealth is there in our temple, we will give it to you, you just take this and go, just spare our God. And so, and th- these are all described, as you said, by contemporary historians. So when that is done, uh, Muhammad Ghazni uh, you know, scoffs at them, laughs, and says, You know, if I actually do that, I will be called as a trader of idols. I would love to be known as a breaker of idols, but shikan, as it is uh, known as. I would rather, if I actually took money from you and spared your idol, I would be called a uh, trader. But I want to be known in history as a breaker of idols. And so he rejects the money that was being given to him and. Uh, goes ahead and destroys the shivling. Now, this is what the primary source is telling you. But what is the interpretation that modern historians, uh, again, I will also not take names like you, but very, very uh, eminent historians say is that, but Muhammad Ghazni had no religious, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, thoughts at all. It was all done for economics, uh, that the temple again, and then to also run this agenda of uh, Brahmin hatred, that, uh, you know, the Brahmins were also corrupt, they had amassed so much wealth and the temple had become like this uh, fiefdom of all the corrupt and unholy people and practices. And so mohammad Ghazni and people like him were not interested in any kind of iconoclasm, but they were interested, in. they were attracted only by the wealth of the temple. And that is why he attacked it. And this is drilled down again and again to kind of whitewash uh, the very the, the theological aspects behind such an attack, or the uh, Islamic iconoclasm, which uh, you know uh, swept across India, particularly North India, and so on in the medieval ages. So this is where there is a classic dichotomy, where what the original sources, as you rightly said, his own. This is not even to idolize the ruler. This is more to say that this was the dialogue that transpired between uh, Muhammad Ghazni and the Pujaris. You will not take that at face value. You will add your subjective interpretation and make it sound to, to suit contemporary politics, to suit contemporary uh, you know ideo- ideologies, to say that, no, 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 but I don't think they were talking what we want them to talk or hear. And so we will impute motives and narratives to that which do not exist. So that is one classic example I can give of the a slip between the cup and the lip when it comes to what the sources say and what a historian makes of the sources, depending on his or her bias, which comes back to my third point that I mentioned right at the start of the highly mediated discipline that it therefore becomes. Now you brought out a very interesting issue of what is about the kavyas and the the mahakavyas, the poetry and the puranas and how they are uh, they are uh, you know uh, important sources of the past. So what is the Indic approach? Did India really have an approach uh, towards history? Uh, Of course it had. But I think unlike the positivist approach of the West and particularly um, postmodern West, Indian approach, Indic approach has been more constructivist. One where individual learners, they actually construct knowledge rather than become passively imbibing them. So this renders the whole process of history as a production, a grand production. So that's why, you know, you have these million retellings of the Ramayana, the Mahabharata. Every part of India has their own tales, fables. So the whole nation is a part of this process of production. So that's constructivism, which is very inherent in our uh, in our. Historiography that is important to note, which is the unique feature of the Eastern or more specifically the Indic uh, approach to historiography. And in our uh, text, you have that famous uh, shlok which goes uh, to say, dharmartha Kama Mokshana, Upadesha, Samanvitam, Kathayuktam, Puravrittam, Itihasam, Chakshmate. What does that mean? That uh, you know, um, Puravrittam or narratives of the past told to you in a katha yuktam in the form of a story Uh, you know and what does the story supposed to do it is supposed to give you upadesha or instruction so the didactic of the whole thing the instruction moral moral instruction that needs to be given and instruction in what in the four purusharthas of dharma artha kama and moksha one that does all of this that is called history itihasa that which has happened, itihasa, uh, that is how our people describe history not as merely a narration or a catalogue of events and documents and facts and uh, how the modern empiricists look at it. But there had to be a didactic nature to it. There had to be, it had to be told interestingly, Kathayuktam. yuktam. So you have all these fantastic tales and fables and all that inside which is embedded the kernel of the historical truth. But it also needs to be instructionary to the common masses. So there has to be a moral fiber uh, attached to it. And that is how, uh, which is narrative in nature. So a very, very clear historical vision was, I think, enunciated, which is an alternative to the modern empiricist one, but one that is hardly entertained or one that is all the time shunned as being somewhat inferior. And so kavya or poetry, uh, its objectives went much beyond the realms of just aesthetics or, you know, just pleasure or entertainment to a lot of, uh, you know, social virtues. And as I said, again, uh, you know, didactics or instructional instruction, moral instructions to the people. So I think this uh, Indic uh, version of what history and historiography is, I think that is very, very important uh, to, to keep in mind.
0: Now, here's the thing. When we look at history sometimes, right, so I'll give you an example. Let's say we can objectively find, uh, say, which parts of a text. So what happens is, so this is how I have seen the left finger uh, come back. You'll be like, oh, there will be a particular text, whether it's the Mughal court historian or whether it's a, you know, ancient religious text where they will make a statement which is, archaeologically impossible to prove because it's obvious. Let's say there were uh, I don't know how to put it. Let's say they will say there were millions of horses of a particular kind in India. I'm just giving you an example and we know that a particular kind of equid was not possible to be bred like the war horse in India beyond a certain point because of geological regions and geographical situation of India. And and it was there in the Eurasian steppes, for example. I'm just using this as an analogy. And Mm. if it is mentioned in the text, we can clearly think, okay, these are just exaggerated claims. But what happens is now this is where, you know, uh, they take it to that what you call the argumentum ad infinitum. Because I have this case, now every single claim made by this person in that text will be broken down in that way. And this takes me into the whole Foucauldian realm, you know, or or the Deridian realm where the author is dead. Once the author writes, the author's perspective is dead. This is like Aurangzeb, for example, or I today write on my so I'll give you a very contemporary example. So we are now all writing our own histories in a weird way. Mm. On the digital sphere, right? I am writing Facebook posts. I am writing Twitter posts. And let's say this entire archive is going to stay. Now, what will happen is in the future, people are going to say, who was this fellow Kushal Mehra? He was writing this. So they will try to draw my character out of my social media posts. Now, in many cases, it's absolutely impossible because I was not all the time on Twitter or Facebook. And to draw an analogy about my character through that is hard. Fair enough. But... It doesn't mean that it is zero. My problem with this whole historical school and this this entire reinterpretation idea, and I want to know what your view is, is that it it, it, it actually boils down to using because this case does not happen that nothing written by those people can be taken seriously. Yeah, true. And
1: uh, therein comes another issue which uh, you know I'm quite surprised and a little alarmed Face where uh, you know constantly it is tossed around that while writing a biography, somehow self narratives of the person uh, using them is considered to be <laughs> wrong. So, I don't understand. So, suppose you're writing about Savarkar. Uh, his writings, and he, the man wrote so copiously, Man, I mean, uh, 8,000, 10,000 pages of literature in several forms, poetry, um, journalism, playwright, history, amateur historian, all kinds of uh, hats that he donned. The first reliance of the person, his thoughts, his view uh, would have to be uh, obtained through his writings. So why is there this ab initio questioning of the legitimacy and authenticity of Savarkar's own writings? What is the historical basis for such questioning? Does it, is it very person specific or is it goes to, uh, to all biographies where, uh, you know, uh, relying on self narratives is seen as something very, very uh, wrong or somehow inferior. Now, a lot of things about So and there is uh, Kushal an entire school of history within the uh, French uh, you know analyse school uh, which is called the Montalete, which is aimed at describing the inner workings of the human mind. They look at how to uh, reconstruct history through the uh, through understanding people of a given time period, how they interacted with what they thought with other people, what they thought about other people. as opposed to the history of particular events or economic trends. So, uh, you know, this school relies explores the inner workings, uh, you know, of uh, human minds. And in this particular school, the autobiography is celebrated as the most standard text, uh, you know, like for instance, uh, in in my book, for instance, I have, when Savarkar was incarcerated in the cellular jail. Now this is a, a very restricted setting Where uh, and I'm raising a philosophical question here uh, as to what does a modern historian going back to the first point that I mentioned about the three pitfalls, how does a modern historian reconstruct? So here is a jail in which the worst of criminals have been put far, far away from the Indian mainland in the Andamans in cellular jail. The British are, uh, you know, heaping the worst of uh, tortures on all these people who are lodged there. And they are quite ashamed of what they're doing, human rights violations. So they are not keeping much records of what is happening in the jail, right? And the rest of India, the mainland India, so to say, doesn't even know what is happening in its backyard, how its uh, compatriots are being treated and tortured in the jail. And these people are silently suffering there with the rest of the world completely oblivious to their cause. So much so that some of them had to Write articles and smuggle it out so that favorable press in India could somehow get these articles and publish it so that the eyes of the Indians could be opened that this is how our compatriots are being treated in such a horrible abysmal way in that jail. So the first problem here is this restrictive setting where there are no records kept by the perpetrators of the torture. The rest of India or people, the newspapers and all these things, they do not know what is happening in this isolation. Big boss ka ghar that is far, far away from the mainland. And then uh, the people inside that jail, most of them are either illiterate they are in their uh, teens or whatever. They don't know how to read and write. They've just been uh Ka Josh and this whole revolutionary spirit. And they went into the revolution. And these were the people who were put there and tortured. So most forget uh, uh, keeping memoirs and all of that. Most of them didn't even know how to read and write. In such a case, there were three or four people. Savarkar. There was one Barin Ghosh who was Aurobindo Ghosh's brother. There was Ulaskar Kardat. Uh, and a few others, Upendranath Banerjee and others, who were were the people who could read and write. They maintained their memoirs, which uh, explains each one's personal, you know, uh, tortures of what happened in the jail. How did they suffer? uh, How did they interact with each other? Whom did they look up to? What did they do? So these become the only and only source Uh, for a modern historian to reconstruct the life of the prisoners in that restrictive environment. There are no other official records. So what does a historian then do? So suppose Savarkar says that today on on X day, he was not given uh, toilet facilities or uh, good food or they were kide makode and all those reptiles and all of that in the bansi khana that was fed to him. Then probably if there is... Uh, uh, barin ghosh saying a similar thing that food was bad he will not be saying the same stuff he will be saying something to the same effect that we had xyz problem and so on and so the so on the other people so you triangulation that is usually done of uh, referring multiple sources to arrive at a consensus around a particular issue these would become the main stay of uh, a narrative of the life in the prison So in that, obviously, if you're writing Savarkar's life, his uh, experiences in the jail, his experiences of the tortures will occupy primacy. And then to say that, to ensure that it's not all exaggerated claims, he could be making exaggerated claims to paint a hero image of himself, you kind of cross-tabulate that with what the other folks, the few handful people who also wrote memoirs, what do they say about, uh, you know, this, uh, this, the same circumstance and situation. So that is the best that one can do. But even for that, one is assaulted and said that, oh, this is too much reliance on self narratives. So it really, really, so first of all, the cardinal, uh, you know, requirement, as I said, in the Montalate school, or in uh, schools like that of historiography, Uh, self-narratives is a very important idea to understand the workings of a human mind and how they interacted with the rest of the world. Secondly, not all circumstances in a person's life, since we are talking in this podcast today about how do you reconstruct a person's life, uh, more so in terms of a biography, not every aspect of a person's life uh, is going to be documented. Uh, uh, You know, Emily Dickinson had written this famous letter where she said, Abyss has no biographer. So the worst points of your life, you will not have documents, uh, you know, but then the biographer needs to ensure that this abyss is also covered in some way, either through some of the sources there or through uh, some other cross tabulation which needs to be done. But, you know, to be, to be somehow... Um, uh, damning of even such attempts. I think that shows very, very poor academic standards and very poor understanding of how history or the past needs to be reconstructed.
0: Another thing that I find very fascinating in a subject is that let's say, let's pick up Savarkar as an example. Okay, Guru Golwalkar. So we cannot use a person's own take for X, because in that sense, through my ideological leaning, this is what is happening honestly with Savarkar, this has what has happened many times, but I'm using Golwalkar as an example for this reason. So you'll always see, bunch of thoughts is used every time to make a judgment on Guru Okay, It is used. And, uh, you know, what is very interesting, Sharda Ji has come on my podcast, you know, he's an active RSS member, I said, no, those views were wrong and uh, Chalak, uh, the current Sarasanga Chalak uh, Mohan Bhagwat said Ki nahin, wo views us ke the, badal and interestingly nobody wants to say that Golwalkar <laughs> Ji himself later on disowned those views he's like oh, abhi mere view Man, what I want to make a point is a larger point a court historian will say I built, I the great Mughal king built a temple there or gave a grant for a temple there that is valid evidence same court historians said, I will crush the heathens and I will walk over their idols by putting the idols under. No, cheating. I don't understand. It's the same book. So this is literally come down to, uh, I like cherry- this version.
1: So I take it. Yeah, cherry picking. Yeah, That's what it is. Cherry picking what is important for you. <laughs> but if we talk again only of you know, biography, because I think the life of men and women and biographies are so important, Kushal. So uh, I draw your and your viewers' attention to that very classic essay, which again, I think people should read of uh, Virginia Woolf, uh, who in 1931, I think, uh, wrote this thing called The Art of Biography, uh, in which she says the bio- biography is the most restricted of all arts. Uh, and why does she say that? Because... One of the strictest rules of a biography is that you have to authenticate facts. Uh, but then documentation in the way of facts is uh, alone is inadequate. And you, uh, from that you get some kind of a shell of the uh, public life of the person. But the deep matter of any biography is the private life, the inward life, right? But then there is no such thing as a complete life. Uh, if you look at your own life, and try to tell the whole truth about it. I don't think you can. Uh, either you will suppress some of the information. Or you would have plain forgotten. I mean, Kushal Mehra, what he did 40 years. I don't know how old you are. Kushal, you are just 18 years old. So, uh, 18 years ago. 41. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so what you did then, we don't know. So, you may not remember and so on. So, there is no such thing as a complete life. So, if you if you are looking at your own life. And you try to tell the entire truth even that you cannot so there is no way so the inner life always remains uh, you know a mystery but then the best biographies expose or try to touch uh, at least skim the surface of that hidden kernel of a person and an honest biographer is one who would admit that there is no way you can reach that inner kernel the inner life of this person and that uh, uh, what i said about emily dickinson that abyss has no biographer that is the problem but then not to attempt the abyss. I think that seems to me to miss the whole point. Uh, So to get to that inner kernel of the person, along with the outer shell of the public life, you need to depend upon the person's own thoughts, writings, experiences, sufferings, all of that. So also, uh, you know, if you're writing about someone, uh, then there are people who are close to the person, uh, you will depend on them. So Virginia Woolf, again, in that essay, she talks about this very, very nicely that uh, she says that if you want to write about a Mr. Jones, you need to rely on his widow, a certain Mrs. Jones, to give you access to all of his letters and documents. And what does she say? I want to quote her here. She says it very nicely. She says, and I quote, the widow and the friends were hard taskmasters. Suppose, for example, that the man of genius about whom you're writing this biography, was immoral, ill-tempered. He threw the boots at the maid's head. The widow would say, still I loved him. He was the father of my children. And the public who love his books must on no account be disillusioned. So cover up, omit, unquote. So the And the biographer obeyed. So, and that's the majority of all these Victorian biographies of the 18th and 19th century. They are like those, you know, wax figures uh, preserved in Westminster Abbey uh, with, you know, uh, crystal clear lives and no warts, nothing uh, mentioned of the people. But then Virginia then says, slowly, quote again, widows became broader minded, the public became keener sighted. The effigy no longer carried conviction or satisfied curiosity. The biographer certainly won a measure of freedom. At least he could now hint that there were scars and furrows on the dead man's face. So that's how biography has evolved where uh, inevitably we have to speculate. We have to make informed conjectures on those abysses of a person's life which do not have documents and records and there are gratifying moments when you know you you speculate and then find uh, uh find the uh, proof of accuracy and there are of course less gratifying moments where you find your conclusion was very very far-fetched this is all part part of the game so biographies i would say they're the most uh, you know literally minded of all the historical subfields because a biographer has to identify his character with his characters he almost has to tread on the path that a novelist, uh, you know, does and his techniques, understanding mentalities, emotions, ambiguities, insecurities, exploring um, all kinds of, you know, personal relationships of your protagonist with others in depth. But, but unlike a novelist, a biographer is an artist under oath. He cannot, he or she cannot make up things or add his or her own facts. So that is why I think she called it the most restricted of all arts. You have to do all of this. You have to be like a novelist, but at the same time, you are an artist under oath. You cannot make up things or add add things to buttress your narrative. So unlike all other historical writing, which focuses on, you know, underlying structures, processes, which move the societies forwards or backwards. Biographies, usually, I think they underappreciate the social and political context of the subject, which in turn, uh, I think, shapes the protagonist. But those are very, very important also uh, when one is crafting a biography.
0: Also, you know, another question I wanted to ask you, and again, what is the theoretical perspective on this? So, uh, again, let's take Mahatma Gandhi as an example, right? So, there was a Mahatma Gandhi who lived in South Africa, for example. Uh, whether we like it or not, Gandhiji's statements made in South Africa when he wrote letters to the then-Britishers at that time during that, they they had a stench of racism in it. I don't know how else to put it, but it is what it is. And then... Human beings change over time. The Gandhi yes. that came to India looked at the Gandhi from the past and changed his views through later writings. And we find it so. When you are writing something as a biographer, you yeah. are restricted. So let's say in your cases, you know, you, you you wrote more than a thousand pages on Savarkar in two volumes, right? But my question from to you as a historian is that how does one create a narrative? So I'll give you a very funny parallel analogy now. So what happens is, in religion, this problem occurs all the time, right? So I'll give you the example of the Quran. So in the Quran, there are the Medinan verses and the Meccan verses, right? The Meccan verses was when the Prophet was in the Mecca in the early stages. And then when Islam expands, it goes into Medina. Now, what happens was, even within the text, there are verses which are, as per the belief of the Muslims, the direct commands of God through the Prophet. And they are contradicting each other. So they came up with this concept of abrogation, right? Uh, The latter verse is more valuable because it came in a later stage because at that point of time, X history has passed. So how would you deal with a scenario like this when you are studying it or doing it, a biography on a person where their views are changing over a period of time? Because whether we like it or not, Vikram, eventually at the end of the day, No matter how much we try to avoid. And, you know, I have to appreciate it because that's one of the first things. If you remember, I messaged you privately when I read both the books. What I loved about it is you try to stay out of the realm of making any judgments on Savarkar, the person. But we are all humans and we are going to do a little bit here and there. After all, we are human beings. We're going to judge people from our present idea, no matter how much we try to avoid it. So how do we do that when we are writing a biography?
1: Is my my uh, answer to that Kushal would be twofold. One is uh, very important to to understand con- this important thing called context. <laughs> I think context is very important. Out of context, you can explain or damn anything. Um, but when you put things in perspective, in a context, uh, in as school children we used to say, explain with reference to context, right? So uh, that was very important to actually explain. Uh, understand a person also, as you rightly said, Gandhi in South Africa, what he did, he he also got a medal uh, at that time, Kesare Hind, for being loyal to the British in the Boer War and the Zulu War and all of that. So are we then just, that's a fact. So does this fact in itself help us to conclude that Gandhi was a stooge of the British? Uh, or do we see in the entirety, in the context in which that uh, happened. And later on, how did he evolve, as you rightly said, as a person? So all of us, none of us are static. The, the minute we are static, we are dead. So uh, so as we evolve as human beings, our thoughts, our ideas, our ideologies change. And when they change your response to society outside, to people uh, outside, which is why that Muntalat school that I mentioned, which gets into the workings of the human mind which are important to analyze through your self-narratives and what you thought in each of these uh, milestones or phases of your life that becomes important to see the context the other way to uh, address this is to put things as is now if i have a, 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 a pre-conceived uh, a pre uh, you know thought of idea of what I need to present Gandhi or Savarkar or Netaji or whoever as, and I retrofit the elements of the past from my sources into that uh, jigsaw puzzle, that is a problem. Uh, Quote mining, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So if I do that, then that is hugely problematic. Uh, But so let your readers see this evolution of this man. Uh, Between my two volumes, I, I mean, I show... That for Savarkar, for example, someone who was talking about Hindu-Muslim unity uh, was highly um, eulogizing about, uh, you know, the role of the Muslim uh, people in the 1857 war of independence uh, and who in his speeches in London have not cut off all this. These are part of the narrative. Uh, He says India is like a rainbow of colors. Uh, Hindu may be the dominant color, but all the other colors, Muslim, Jain, Parsi, this, that, etc. They all need to be there to make this a beautiful rainbow. So someone who was so inclusive and so on, then moved into a different approach or thought about what he had uh, uh, to the Muslim problem. And what was that? Why did that happen? It just didn't happen because one fine morning he thought of uh, becoming uh, in today's terms, a rabid Islamophobe and all of that. But then there were things around him that were going on. And people are constantly responding to the society around you. In his case, what he saw, the tortures in cellular jail, the uh, the Khilafat movement, the Muslim separatism that was gathering ground with the Muslim League and uh, Morley Minto reforms, all of these added to this man's worldview of, no, I think what I was thinking then was wrong. And I think I need to uh, model a new intellectual response to this problem and thereby came up with his whole theory of Hindutva and so on. So this evolution is there for all to see. And then the same person, closer and closer to uh, freedom uh, has uh, has a different view from what Ambedkar says, where Ambedkar is talking for an exchange of uh, populations because these are two different cultures. We have to completely, you know, kind of separate the two of them. They cannot live together. The Muslim can never accept India as uh, uh, as his or her motherland. Cannot be f- loyal, all of that because of this Darul Islam, Darul Harab, all that which Ambedkar said. But Savarkar is still saying that no, let's have a. There may be two nations and all of that, but we can live together under a common constitution. The Hindu Mahasabha came up with such a constitution draft, uh, which. Kind of provided equal rights to all people irrespective of your religion citizenship rights uh, fundamental rights uh, all of it given equally to everybody so uh, for somebody who so as a biographer you it's 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 beautiful to see this evolution of a man uh, or a woman and to present that to the reader saying look this was how this man was in his childhood in his youth in his mid age and his old age and it's for the reader to then make up their mind as to what trajectory they observe and uh, what aspect of it do they agree upon.
0: So in that case, actually, you know, then I would like to ask you a question from a user that was asked way before the podcast also started. So I'm picking up from the live stream. So somebody has asked, you know, when we, even before we begin. So then in such a case, then can we bring in tools, let's say, from hard sciences when we are doing biographies or, you know, looking back at history? Like this person has asked like something like clyodynamics, which is proposed by Peter Urchin. I think it was proposed in 2010. So it's a transdisciplinary area, right? It uses uh, cultural evolution, okay. uh, I don't know much about uh, it. <laughs> economic history, plyodynamics, macro sociology and stuff like that. So it's basically mathematical modeling of this. So so I guess what what would be happening in a case like that would be that, you know, I look at the courts something, uh, I I don't think so. Bill Warner has done something exactly like that with Islam, but Bill Warner, what he has done is he's done a meta-analysis, right? So what Bill Warner has done is is look at the Quran, how many verses talk about this, how many verses talk about that, how many do this, how many do that, then I create a baseline sort of thing, a baseline score chart and then I put it according to that and then I put every religion in a comparative assessment. Obviously, Mm -hmm. it stems from an a priori value judgment that I am, let's say, how many uh, homophobic verses are there in one text or in one thing? So I will give X marks for homophobia. I will give X marks for misogyny. I will give X marks. Obviously it's a, it's an arbitrary line and we have to draw a line somewhere when you're judging historical characters. I get that. But do you think then in biography, some of these tools can ever be used?
1: I would find it very difficult because I think human beings are so complex and as i said biography finally uh, is not a collation of facts a collation of documents and the the just the meta analysis or just the public uh, shell uh, outer shell but that inner kernel which is of a you're writing about a human life a human being and so uh, everything that accompanies that You know, the emotions, the struggles, the ups and downs, the joys, the struggles, sorrows, uh, all of it, the triumphs, everything needs to be uh, analyzed, the interpersonal relationships, uh, their own self-assessment of themselves, all these things. um, If if we could actually mathematically modelize our own lives, I don't know, then maybe we may not be able to be what we are and life would be so boring and predictable, Uh, just as... uh, as much as astrology is a predictive tool, uh, which will tell you what is going to happen uh, based on some celestial object somewhere, it kind of reduces your life to very predictable kind of a thing. No, I mean, that, that is a kind of mathematical modeling where you know that once this planet goes into that transit or something else, this is going to happen to you depending on where it is in your chart and all of that. So I do not somehow uh, think that Uh, So much of mathematical precision can be used in the understanding of human lives. They have to be, each human life is very unique. Uh, Each human life struggles and uh, sufferings are uh, unique. And so they need to be studied and analyzed on, I think, those principles and not uh, made into a model of any sort.
0: I actually tend to agree with you because what happens is when you're You know, predicting historical events is a very different thing. You can use scientific facts like, okay, there was global warming, there was global cooling. So this civilization collapsed, that civilization sprung up and you can make certain macro
1: pandemic, you know, like what happened to the Spanish flu. So we know vaguely maybe that's what will happen to COVID and whatever.
0: Yeah. Sorry. So, but in the case of individual biographies, making an objective judgment about someone, like I said, even that's why I use Bill Warner as an example, like, to model it, Bill Warner starts with an a priori assumption of these are the scores I'm going to attribute. Now, it is cultural, uh, culturally sensitive, right? Like now in today's moral art, most cultures yeah. think, you know, homophobia uh, and all these racism and all these things are. Uh, uh, I'm not saying I'm a subjectivist. I am an objectivist. I believe these are actually bad things. But, you know, maybe another culture might go out there and say, uh, "Oh, I'll give you an example. If I model into it, joint family system is inferior and nuclear family system is superior, for example, right? Or something of that sort. Now, there will be a pushback from certain cultures that genuinely say, no, we have benefits in the joint family system. And and I think some people are something sometimes when you're doing a biography, it's just beyond that statistical modeling, right?
1: Correct. Correct.
0: Very yeah. true. All right. Vikram. Yeah. So now I'm going to start asking you questions because there are too many of them. Uh, yeah. so I'm gonna start doing that oh, uh, because I... <laughs> <laughs> so, so somebody has asked now, sir, you have so this is a person who consistently reads you, apparently. So, okay. sir, he is writing that, Sir, okay, now you are you because you had announced it on the podcast also that you know your next project is going to be Tipu Sultan. So this question is uh, is about that. So, sir, when you're studying Tipu Sultan, uh, you know, how how are you going to go about defining your sources or studying your sources? So I guess the question. So I'll read it. Uh sir, what are the sources would you be referring to in your study of Tipu Sultan? Would it be completely based on his writings and that of contemporary Muslim English writers, or or how are you going to go about are you going to incorporate archaeological ev- evidences too? I'm so uh you know
1: fascinated, Kushal, that people go so deeply into what we say and read and, I mean, write and so on. Uh, I must mention this other person who, uh, on Twitter, Feluda Mitter. I don't know what uh, what his or her uh, real name is and so on. Uh, a great fan of yours also and your podcast. And the yeah. kind of mining that he's done of uh, the book and, uh, you know, uh, how many sources, how much is coming from this, how much is coming. I think this is very, very heartening that, you know, what we, what we uh, do so much uh, work, it's actually touching a chord somewhere. So yeah, for, to this question, I would say, um, you know, it's going to be a plethora of sources. It's not just his, uh, his, yes, that's him, uh, Feluda Mitter. That's the so, Twitter
0: uh, so I thought I'll just give him a shout out by putting his name on the screen.
1: Yes. <laughs> so yeah, um, so there's going to be a plethora of sources. And uh, interestingly, when I went to... Uh, I commenced research on this sometime back. Uh, and when I was at the British Library in London, there was a, when the uh, Patna fell in 1799 to the British, uh, the, most of Tipu's books and his library, etc. was ransacked. A lot of what he had because he was a great reader. Uh, you know, he also got a lot of books from across the world. Uh, so many of this was... Shifted away to London. The British were mortally scared of him. They also wanted to understand what this, what's going on in the mind of this man, and he had this very uh, curious, uh, you know, habit of every morning. Uh, While he was sitting in his loo, he would sit there and write his diary of the previous day or previous night, uh, particularly of the dreams that he got. And very, very vivid dreams. uh, Most often some angel coming there and saying, go and destroy this temple and that temple or church or whatever. So in the morning, this man rushing to the loo, sitting on the pot, probably sitting and writing uh, whatever so that he doesn't forget uh, all these dreams were put together in his own hand. Now, these documents, which are called later uh, William Kirkpatrick, one of the uh, uh, English uh, colonels, they actually uh, got it translated and all that. But the originals of all of that sits in the British Library in London and apparently never accessed by anybody. So there's a whole chest of uh, you know documents coming from Tipu's library. Uh, which are important. So his self-narratives are nonetheless important. But at the same time, you should also look at who are the other people in the protagonist's life. Uh, For instance, he usurped the throne from the Hindu Wodiyar uh, Maharajas of Mysore. Uh, So the Vodayar narratives uh, in Kannada uh, and some of their other... Uh, you know, the the, uh, keepers of documents in Marathi, uh, these would have a different version of Tipu. He's shown as a a villain, as a despot, tyrant and all of that for various reasons because he's someone who usurped their throne. So their account becomes important. The British account is very important because they were the ones constantly in war with him. But then... uh, uh, obviously, he's going to be demonized in the British accounts and shown as a despot, which is why they had to step in and exterminate him. You have the French accounts uh, and Tipu was an ally of the French. So then the French accounts are going to take a very considerate and uh, you know moderate view of him to justify why they allied with him. And then you had Tipu's own court historians uh, who wrote in Urdu and Persian and all of that. And Tipu wrote himself. And then you had other folklore. Uh, there were Lavanis in different parts of uh, Mysore state the, which were dedicated to him. They were the accounts of subaltern accounts of say the Ayengars of uh, Mandya uh, and Melkote whom Tipu um, you know ruthlessly murdered on the day of Diwali to, for which they don't celebrate Diwali even to this day. So their families have some stories. The Kodavas of Kurg. They have some family memories and community memories and histories of their own. The Syrian Christians of Mangalore, the Nair's of Malabar, they have their accounts. So what I'm trying to tell you is populating this, it's like a giant Rajasthani thali, uh, you know, which we see with so many katoras, with so many dishes. So that is how the sources present themselves to a historian. So many And each is different. One is Tikha, one is sweet, one is something else. And it is a mix of all of that to reconstruct uh, what uh, the person is. And that is where the uh, intellectual complexity and also the the joy of uh, doing this comes where you are able to see contradictory sources and try to make sense of a person who died 200, 300 years ago uh, with whom we don't have much of a direct contact or communication.
0: So this person has asked uh, as Vikram sir tells us in the shloka about history uh, but in that case my question to him is wouldn't history also be then what that particular Rishi Muni is trying to infer in that case how will we go about understanding our own past?
1: No, but there was no one, that's what I said the the Indic way was never one person telling you something so it was a constructivist thing where multiple people were telling you. So Valmiki may have written the original Ramayana, but how many people have written Ramayana after that? Uh, in every different way and versions change. Somewhere Rama and Sita become brother and sister. Somewhere something else. So all kinds of changes and narratives are coming within that. So it's never a top-down approach that someone is sitting on a pulpit and telling you that this is what it is. And all of you are passive Consumers of this knowledge. You're all active. Everybody, as I said, it was a process of production, a joint production, a national production. The Mahabharata had contributions from various parts of uh, the country and it continues to to be told, retold. That's why multiple retellings are possible. Similarly with the Puranas, uh, the 18 Puranas. So the epics, the Ramayan, Mahabharata and the Puranas collectively are known in our uh, in the literature as itihasa, so even the Puranas uh, are not one person or one rishis' uh, revelation. Those are the the Vedas are considered to be the Shruti, which is uh, which is revealed or whatever. But then the the other the Smritis which are constantly being revised, which are constantly being retold, re-narrated, and so on. Those are very different. So it's not one person's view, perspective, or narrative which is gaining. Uh, credence. You can add your own version to it, tweak it and make it uh, make it a different version of the same text.
0: I, I guess in the larger sense, this is a classic tussle with the emic view and the etic view too, right? Where every time there is the emic perspective, there is an etic perspective. So yeah. to continue with that, this is a, this is an interesting question. I was like, would praise in courts, obviously in enemies books and criticism again in courts by a court again in quotes, or emic historian of a culture slash person be considered accurate when we are writing a biography of a historical figure?
1: Would praise or... uh, Please say that again without the quotes.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay. So again, would praise in enemies' books and criticism by a court historian of a Uh culture or a person be considered accurate?
1: It uh, it depends. It can't make it. Uh, it depends on what is the criticism or what is the praise, and uh, we cannot blanketly say is it accurate or not accurate. Again, everything has to be I think seen contextually and by the veracity of what it is trying to convey. What is the thing that is being praised? What is the uh, entity being uh, criticized? And have there been other people who are doing the same? Uh, If at all, we get to find it. Not always, as I always mentioned, everything you cannot find uh, multiple sources for triangulation. Sometimes these may be the only sources available. So in which case, it's a case by case uh, basis. I don't think there is a one blanket answer for that. But yeah, very interesting question.
0: Yeah, I told you, the viewers ask very good questions, uh, at least on the podcast. Uh, okay, so I guess where uh, this particular person has written, what return of investment, as in uh, the eventual output is, I guess what they're trying to say, is expected by studying historical events or in-depth analysis of a legacy system, how does this help the development of existing biases? In the cognitive and logical functioning of a current society, let at a political level or at a social level. Hmm.
1: That's again a very interesting question. So, uh, the I, uh, I mean, legacies and history. So that goes to the fundamental. Uh, again, uh, E. H. Carr's book starts with that. What is history? Uh, you know, and why is history important itself, <laughs> and whether it is important at all? Whether people like us who dwell in the past uh, are we needed at all? I think it is <laughs> important to the effect, to the uh, to the extent that uh, we need to learn from the mistakes of the past. Uh, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of human behavior, though we are not modeling it uh, in, in as the first question, uh, you know, asked. Certain things are p- perhaps predictable about the way things pan out. Uh, as you mentioned, Kushal, some of the historical events perhaps are cyclical, perhaps are repetitive, which is why we keep saying that history repeats itself. So some kind of a priori um, uh, understanding of what uh, what might transpire and so on, probably that is, that is one important uh, aspect of it. And history also then gives itself away to political, uh, contemporary political misuse or abuse uh, of any kind. uh, Because uh, in the third aspect of that mediation, the modern historian who comes, as I said, he or she comes with the biases, with their ideology, more importantly, there's probably, uh, as I said, the fallacy of, uh, you know, uh, objectivity, uh, preposterous fallacy, as Carr said, that you cannot have anything which is objective completely. There will be inherent biases which will creep in. Uh, So these also uh, kind of define contemporary politics, contemporary issues, contemporary discourse also, in which history plays an important role. And in that, things like, you know, what is your self-image of yourself as a civilization, as a people, as a nation, uh, in those things also is is some uh, amount of genuine legitimate pride in your own past, in your achievements, in what your ancestors did. And can that be an inspiring, uh, can that legacy then become inspirational for future achievements uh, without resting only in the laurels of the past? I think those then become the contemporary use of what history uh, can provide.
0: Another interesting question. Where does Will Durant's methodology stand in modern historiography? Should Indian school history books reflect his volumes, India and Her Neighbors? Should they be looking at them?
1: Indeed, they should be. I mean, including among other things that, you know, the the very uh, forthright manner, in which he talks particularly about what we in india shy away from talking which is the islamic conquest which uh, you know he called as the uh, the bloodiest story in human uh, humans history not just uh, this country's history i think that was a very very courageous statement to make and so a lot of uh, his work um, for that matter, any historian's work uh, is important to analyze, to assess, and reassess and reevaluate. Uh, there's there's that famous uh, you know quotation Kushal, which comes to mind, which said, "Every work of history is an interim report. There is nothing that is that is a final report in history." I think it was I forget uh, the name of. Uh, uh, the historian, American historian who said this, uh, his name skips me. He says, what people did in the past is not stored in amber, immutable through the ages. And every generation looks back and drawing from its own experience tries to illuminate the past. Uh, so I think anybody, whether it's Will Durant or anybody else, I think the need is to evaluate not only the past, but also the writings of the past. And so these interim reports can then be put out to dry. Uh, can be put out for evaluation to see how much of it still holds water, or has there been fresh research, fresh perspectives that have come up, which will throw these things out into the dustbin? So, I think that constant evaluation without blocking off anything is a very, very important prerequisite.
0: All right. So, this question is very specific to Indian historians. So, uh, the question is that uh the the current extreme bias uh, when i say bias is a bias is clearly towards the left when it comes to historians in india is it because they have grown up with a particular narrative and it's hard to rewire or is it always political to favor a particular community because it stems from a way of looking at the world itself
1: <laughs> that's a good question so i think it's a bit of both uh a lot of the the training also renders you in that direction and orientation and a lot more is also political uh, because most of them are also i mean quite unabashedly card carrying members of political parties particularly the various wings and factions of the of the left and so and how do you then they then say that they are in any way objective or neutral or you can't be uh, when you're affiliated to a party you write articles which get uh, published in a in a political party's website, and then you say you're an objective uh, assessor of uh, of any work. I think that doesn't uh, hold. So I think it's a bit of both. It's a bit of training uh, that comes and orientation about how you see the past itself. As I said, these are different different schools and methodologies. Uh, so the Marxist historians would always cough at the the NLA school, which I mentioned. Uh, so similarly, but then all of them draw from that larger Rankine uh, model um, or the critical theory of the, you know, the, the 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 Frankfurt School and all of this. So each of them have developed uh, their mindsets uh, partly in that way due to the training and orientation. And a large part, I think, is also contributed by contemporary politics and how you need to ingratiate yourself to your uh, Overdogs, so to say.
0: Fair enough. Um, okay, this question is it's again very interesting. Is there a good ranking system of Indian? prime ministers or historical uh, figures using empirical objective methods, similar to how historians in America and UK rank their presidents and PMs. Are you aware of that? Any kind of research that happens in India where prime ministers and presidents are literally ranked like in America? I, I, I know in America, this is a very constant thing. They keep doing it like similarly, yes. like the Bill Warner thing, right? Yes. Set the criterion and then start doing it. Right.
1: Unfortunately, no, I don't think other than, some random media survey and all that, which asks people, Vox Populi, <laughs> I don't think anything else. And there, there is uh, recency bias, confirmation bias, uh, where obviously if you ask today's, uh, someone on the road today, uh, who's not even aware of, or was born after Indira Gandhi died or whatever, then, you know, uh, they would not even rank her. Modi comes uh, more uh, commonly to your mind, or Aman Mohan Singh comes because you've seen, the recency bias comes in, but uh, scholarly uh, kind of ranking or assessment, sadly, no, not done.
0: Should be done. Okay. This one question I had. uh, So now we have the field of population genetics coming up in a major way, Vikram. Uh, Ancient DNA is coming up and it's clearly showing movements of people across the world from one place to the other. So as a historian, who looks at the past and analyzes thing, these things. Obviously, you are more, we we are focusing more on biographies now. But it's just a general question I wanted to ask you, and uh, you know, and another factor that I wanted to add was that even when we're looking at history, you know, let us look at say climate change or uh, or natural disasters that are caused or other other factors like in the case of the indus valley civilization i'll tell you one of the major factors they consider in 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 the migration out of uh, ivc uh, eventually were also climatic conditions so how much of an impact do these things also come when you are even looking at a biography, let's say of a histor- historical figure way back in the past, that maybe there were certain climatic conditions that led to a person and this is very harsh view that that person had. And maybe we need to remodel our assessment of that person when we are making a moral judgment today.
1: All the time, Kushal. I think that's... And particularly more distant in the past, all the more. Like, for instance, uh, you had the Rakhi Gadi excavations. And the the genetic uh, the dna analysis and all of that that followed there the archaeological uh, analysis that followed that has uh, changed what was already suspect about this whole aryan um, uh, aryan invasion theory aryan migration theory and all of that and we uh, historians are looking at those aspects if in good conscience with uh, uh, you know a fresh look in the wake of uh, you know interdisciplinary discoveries which is not uh, strictly in the realm of uh, history study itself but as you said population genetics or whatever else which is looking at evolutionary bio- biology or whatever to see how populations uh, evolved so this is one classic case there was a sanauli excavation too which uh, happened a couple of years ago which changed our idea of whether horses and chariots were uh, indigenous to India or did they come from outside and so on. So understanding these things from these other disciplines will also then help us remodel our own understanding of our past in a different way. And so not necessarily just biography, but also history then becomes very, uh, very differently seen. And frankly, you know, I don't honestly see so much of a difference people make this distinction that biography is not history, uh, which is, I think a wrong, a wrong way to look at it. Uh, biography is history. Uh, so history seen through the eyes of a person or a biography uh, is, I think, very, uh, a very important document where, uh, you know, through the person, through your protagonist's eyes, you're purviewing that era, uh, the, the, the life and times, usually the subtitle of life and times is used. So, the life is important, the times are also very important. Uh, the times which influence the protagonist and how the protagonist influenced the times. So, this osmotic relationship between the two, uh, the symbiosis between these two, I think that is very, very uh, important. So, biography is no way an inferior science or inferior discipline within historiography, but a very essential one other component another literary field within historiography.
0: So this is my last question, Uh, Vikram and we'll wrap it up. So let's say a lot of young kids who might be wanting to write biographies and uh, learn uh, and take inspiration and go forward. So what would your message to all those young kids would be? How do they go about this?
1: So first of all, you know, uh, Kushal, I usually when it comes to say a biography, I term it as a love affair. (laughs) You know, it's it's classic case of a love affair. You fall in love with the person. You need to have that uh, empathy, not necessarily sympathy for the person in whom you want to invest your time, your emotion, your money and everything for long spells of time uh, to write about. Uh, And then just as it happens in a love affair, you start chasing your love interest uh literally stalking them uh which happens in the course of the research which is you rummage through every old attic every old uh, letter you know your by uh your protagonists enemies become your enemies your their friends become your friends you start somewhere subconsciously becoming their advocate almost uh and Freud, I think, had called it as uh, transference. Uh, you know, it's it's a kind of a psychological, this thing of transference of emotions. So this is what happens, um, uh, you know, when you're so invested in that person. Many times in the course of that love affair, uh, there could be disillusionment. As love affairs happen, uh, there could be breakups. <laughs> also, we are talking about this, all this in the month of love and so on. So there could be breakups. You could be disillusioned with the subject. You could drop off. Or a new love interest could take, o- take over uh, you. But I think what is important after gathering all this information, after chasing your love uh, interest for so long, when you're committing it to, to writing uh, or building the narrative, a very, very important aspect is to create that critical distance between yourself and your subject. Because unless and until that is done, uh, the very, very thin line that separates a biography from a hagiography and you are expected to pr- produce all sides of the picture all sides of the story uh, not necessarily uh, very convenient to your protagonist and that is very hurtful because you know you are uh, you are in love with this person you want to uh, speak up for them you because they are dead they are not, are not in a position to speak up for themselves right now uh, so you would like to be their spokesperson but if you end up becoming that way then you know, the work will become a hagiography. So you should let all sides of the perspective, including critical uh, accounts against that person come into your narrative. Some of the protagonist's enemies, if they've said what they've said, or opponents or rivals, what they've said, all that coming into. And suddenly, uh, as I said, the artist under oath is asked to take this moral, become a moral eunuch or, uh, you know, separate himself or herself from uh, from making judgments, from making uh, value judgments about the person, and step back and cut off the you know emotional cords. That is a very very important component of any biography uh, that is uh, written if it is to be taken seriously. And so, uh, those who would like to do, I think it's a fascinating. It's, it gives you voyeuristic pleasure <laughs> to you know to be able to look into someone else's life and. Uh, Uh, On the ringside, you're able to see everything that's happened in his whole life. Uh, It's a fascinating field to delve into and look at history through biography, uh, biography as history, as I would say, and reconstruct through their lives also the times in which they lived. Uh, But then a lot of hard work, as I illustrated in that example related to Tipu Sultan. So just one person and just see the... A plethora of sources from multiple and all of which will be contradicting each other. So it's a lot of hard work to be able to gather it, to be able to sift through it and also to make sense of it and to make a cogent narrative out of it, which as I said needs to be emotionally neutral which needs to be uh, objective to the extent possible because as I again said, objectivity is a preposterous fallacy uh, so there has to be uh, to the extent possible, that objective narration of whatever you have gathered. So if one keeps these cardinal principles, I think a lot of interesting biographies can come up. There are so many men and women of uh, in the past uh, whose lives are so interesting and whose lives could be inspiring, whose lives could be illuminating. Uh, some could be you know, depressing to the extent that they are not repeated by any of us again. So I think there's a need to relook at these lives. And if more and more people pick this up, uh, pick this genre up and uh, illuminate it, I think it would be fabulous.
0: Fantastic. I couldn't have worded it better. So, you know, I'll just say this in the end that writing about his figures uh, and historical figures in the past is always a tricky question now you know, like rukram said you have paucity of information then you have to sift the information and take where and then you have to do your internal decision okay i will put x over y and that's where you know the subjective element comes because at the end of the day we are all having certain views like i i found this very interesting bit in one of the previous podcasts where we were talking about uh you know arun krishnan's book the battle of atapi and he made a very interesting point he's like look my looking at uh Rajendra Chola or the Raja Raja thing is not going to be the Sri Lankan perspective, right? The Sri Lankan mm-hmm. perspective is going to be very different uh, when it comes to judging the same character. So how am I going to judge him? I'm going to judge him from a Indian perspective and the Sri Lankan might judge him from a Sri, Sri Lankan perspective. Also in that, which Sri Lankan is that person? Is that a Sri Lankan nationalist or a Sri Lankan mm-hmm. patriot? Or, or somebody who's a Sri Lankan Marxist, which is not a nationalist or a patriot, right? So it depends, it's like maybe the Sri Lankan Marxist and the patriot might agree with the Indian version and the Indian <laughs> Marxist might agree with the Sri Lankan version. So it's it's all coming from a preconceived notion from where we preset our biases. And But the thing is that why, why I have thoroughly enjoyed, and I repeat this, and when I read Vikram, uh, both, of, both the parts of Savarkar, of and... You know, I I always have this habit, okay, I'll look at the references, I'll try to dig up the references as much as I can. What what I thoroughly enjoyed was that Vikram tried to narrate a much larger, uh, you know, painting of Savarkar, the person and, and I don't know what is And these are not Vikram's words. These are my words. So please don't attribute them to Vikram. But there seems to be this incessant obsession with Vikram in a certain clique in India, almost as if Vikram has committed a sin by trying to give another side of of Savarkar. How dare he do that? How dare he do that? And now how dare Vikram Sampath now go and study Tipu Sultan? Well, you know, the answer to that is we need 100 more Vikram Sampats because there are 100 more stories to be told. So Vikram, thank you very much for doing what you're doing and coming on the podcast and educating us.
1: Thank you, Kushal. It was always, always so enlightening talking to you and at the same time through you to several of your viewers who, as you said, some of the best questions that come up, uh, so informed, so uh, so well-worded and thought of questions. Uh, so really, really enjoyed. It was for thought for me.
0: Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up again. Uh, if it doesn't matter if you're listening to the audio version or you're watching the video version go to the description of podcast i've left the link of vikram's books on savarkar inside the link of the podcast you can buy other books also it doesn't matter all the books uh, are there on amazon or wherever where your preferred portal is please buy the books read them have discussions about them and ask many more questions obviously you can follow vikram on twitter you can also support the char work podcast by subscribing to the channel liking the video leaving your comments or or go to the next level by supporting me monetarily either through the YouTube membership or the CH, you know patreon subscription or buying the merch or sending donations through UPI i'll see you on wednesday with another interesting conversation until then namaste take care bye bye